Good morning, Providence Church family, and a very happy first full day of summer to you here on this um, summer solstice, and uh, also a very happy Father's Day uh, to those of you who are dads or think about your own dads today. And I realize that Father's Day, uh, like other days in our calendar year, can be uh, a source of pain for some, as you just, uh, maybe you wanted to be a dad and that didn't happen, or um, your father didn't love you as well as he could have. And, and today, Father's Day, if it's a, a day of pain for you, I, I just ask us to think about what scripture does and that it reveals God as a loving father. And all of us fathers have inadequacies and how wonderful it is that God is our perfect heavenly father uh, who unconditionally loves those who are his. And so today we, we not only think about earthly dads, but also the fatherhood of God, and then for the good dads out there, and uh, what a positive day this is, just uh, to uh, delight in the responsibility we have to represent the God of the universe to our families. And uh, in that, we just, uh, again, congratulate all of you dads and the dads that we have, and today's a day to commemorate that. Uh, just a reminder that we're one church family. These are very strange times that we're going to continue. We've decided to continue meeting uh, twice outside on Sundays, at least through July 12th. So we're going to continue to have one service at 9 a.m., another service at 11 a.m. As you may know, there's a tent out there for a bit of shade. We're asking uh, to register for those services, which we always send out that link on Mondays, just so we have an idea of how many are coming, because we will be maintaining our distance, and we continue to learn as we go and appreciate your flexibility in that as we're uh, looking at other churches and other models and just uh, doing all we can to make sure the, that we're as safe as, as, po as possible and responsible um, before uh, those who would uh, provide guidance for us. So also we'll continue to have this service available to you, a stream service, which is the same content, and those who've elected to stay home, it's a wise choice. We talked a few weeks ago about uh, obeying conscience, and no doubt that's a, a good option right now, but to remember we're one church family, and we want to stay true to our mission to love God and to love our neighbors as ourselves. A more conventional announcement now is that this upcoming Wednesday, June 24th at 7 p.m., this is an announcement for the youth, so if you're in middle school or high school, please come to the church because some of the student leaders have set up a very challenging 18-hole putt-putt course in the church. It goes all throughout the church, so that's going to be at 7 p.m., and if you could, it would be great if you could bring a putter. Uh, so maybe a family member has one, you could bring that, so please bring a putter, but this Wednesday night, if you're in middle school or high school, please come to the church uh, for that fun night of putt-putt. And lastly, a thank you for those who signed up for a clothe kid uh, that I was told we nearly doubled our numbers of the students we're supporting from last year. So way to go, church family. I, I just am, uh, continue to be moved by what God is doing through this local church family and how you've cared for one another, how you've given generously to those in need, uh, be it through Cornerstone Pregnancy Services or, or Love, Inc. and clothe the kids. So just a way of saying thank you, way to go. Let's continue to do all we can to serve those in this time of of uncertainty, at least in earthly sense uncertainty, but as we have our feet firmly planted on the rock of the Lord Jesus. And that's why we meet here today and we celebrate his name. So I'll turn it to Pastor Ian as he calls us to worship. Church, let's sing to our holy God. Holy, holy, holy. 
holy God we sing to is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And God the Father delighted to send for us God the Son, the mediator, the one who has reconciled sinful man to God by his death and his resurrection. In him we have hope. And so the Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 8, their first two articles we'll recite together thinking about Christ as our mediator. And so again, as we recite these together as one body, one congregation before God, um, may we delight in what we say. May we rejoice in what we confess together, that this is true of God the Son. And so will you say with me, it pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten Son, to be mediator between God and man, the prophet priest and king, the head and savior of his church, the heir of all things and judge of the world, unto whom he did from all eternity give a people to be his seed and to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. And article two, the son of God, the second person in the Trinity, being very and eternal God of one substance and equal with the Father, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature with the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin. Being conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion. Which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God
firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are still, when striving cease, my comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fallen of God in helpless pain, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, for every sin on him was laid, here in the death of
morning. Uh, my name is Caleb. I am the pastor of student ministries here, and I'd like to invite you to join me in prayer. Father, we thank you that you are the God of history, that all things happen by your decree. No people, no places, no pandemics rise or fall without your knowledge. We also thank you that you don't simply rule over history, but that you entered into it. From as far back as Genesis 3, you make your intentions known to enter into the brokenness of your people and do so in Jesus, so that in you and through him, you might, he might renew all things. Father, we ask that that renewal would be breaking in even now. Uh, we live in a world that is marred by the fall and all effects and aspects, and we lift up those in our congregation who are plagued by the physical effects of a fallen world. We lift up Lynn Tomasula's mom. Uh, we praise you uh, that the surgery went well, and we ask that you would protect her as she recovers. We lift up Rick and Barb Schuster's daughter-in-law. Would you keep her and her baby safe during this pregnancy? And the many others here unnamed, we ask that you would be near to them and show yourself to be the great physician in their lives. And Father, we've also seen this brokenness unfold over the past month with the racial tension that pulses through our nation. And we ask that your people would be instruments of justice, that you would use them to set things to right in anticipation for the, the great writing of all things that our King brings at his return. And Father, we also lift up our church specifically in these strange times. There are many things, many opinions that could divide us. May it not be so. Would you empower us all to make every effort to maintain the spirit of unity, uh, even if that means setting aside things for the sake of others? And as we celebrate the fathers in our lives, we ask that you would empower them to be reflections of you as they lead and love their families. And may we also relish today that you are our father and the love that you lavished upon us. And now as we turn to your word, would you impress upon our hearts that these are not merely words penned long ago, but words breathed out by you. So may they, may they equip us for every good work that you've prepared in advance for us to do in the name of Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. I'd like to invite you to uh, take your copies of God, God's word in whatever form you have it and turn with me to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, and we are going to begin in verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathet, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Jonan, the son of Ressa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, 
the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eleazar, the son of Joram, the son of Mathet, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Mela, the son of Mena, the son of Mattatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashan, the son of Amminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arnai, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sirug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalaleel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Thank you very much, Pastor Caleb. I'm sure some have already put it together that I, I asked the only elder in the church who's younger than I am to read that passage. You're thinking it's some form of hazing, but Caleb did a wonderful job. And I think that there is a question as to why a passage like this would be worth our time. You know, a lot of passages in the Bible come from a long time ago, and sometimes we can read right over them. So, you know what, that's from a long time ago. You know, this is boring. I don't want to pay attention to it. We kind of cast it aside. And there's a remark from history that's always stuck with me, and I'm going to just tell this because it's been so influential on my own life, and I hope it doesn't uh, in any way come off as self-righteous, but it's helped me in how I study the Bible, and it goes back to uh, debates that we've talked about here before between the great Erasmus of Rotterdam and Martin Luther the Reformer. You see, Erasmus was a great scholar. Uh, he was the most learned man of his day, and, and really we owe a lot to Erasmus for the attention that he paid to, paid to the Bible. But being a humanist and being the most learned man of his day, he got in a debate with Luther really about the authority of God's word. It was about the, uh, whether or not the Bible, whether or not scripture uh, has an authority in our lives. And Luther makes a remark to Erasmus. He says this, you know what the difference between you and me is, Erasmus? He says, you stand over the Bible and pass judgments on it. But I stand under the Bible and allow the Bible to judge me. And all through the years of graduate school where I've been under the textual critics, I still think that remark is the fundamental divide that wrestles in our hearts, that every temptation, right, we can have temptations to stand over the Bible and judge it. Say, I don't, I'm not sure I like that. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure I want the, that so much to, to come out. In fact, it's quite irrelevant. I, I don't want that to be a part of my life. And it's very easy, right, to put ourselves over the, over the Bible and judge it because we're modern people. But really what we're called to do, like Luther, is to posture ourselves under the Bible and to say, what is this going to do to judge my heart and how do I need to conform to what God has revealed? And we need to ask ourselves, right, why did God preserve this genealogy for us? What's it doing here in Luke chapter 3? That don't you think Luke, being a learned biographer, it says he's very deliberate, that he wants to tell us something with this genealogy. He didn't just say, oh, I need to take up a bit more space. I know what I'll do, but God's given. What's it doing here in the text, and how are we supposed to understand it? And if you remember last week, John the Baptist is on the scene. He's preparing the way for Jesus, and he preaches a great sermon. 
He says, everybody, pay attention to what God's doing in Jesus. Repent, that is, turn from the world, change direction, and come towards Jesus and live a life in accordance with what he says. And now we see in chapter 3 that Luke's going to go on to tell us a bit more about who this Jesus is. I think that's Luke's big point. You see the title of the sermon, Who is Jesus? Now, this is a question I think every intellectually honest person needs to grapple with. That if we look at the annals of history, you say the most compelling figure, I think, and talking now not from a religious perspective, but aren't you compelled by Jesus the Nazarene, this carpenter, right, who'd capture the minds and the hearts of millions of people through the centuries, just as relevant today as he's always been. Aren't you compelled to make a judgment about him? Who is he? Who is this Jesus? And in this genealogy, Luke is taking us a bit further to help us answer that question. Now, some, sadly, they answer the question, well, I'm not, you know, I think Jesus is just a good teacher, and they leave it at that. You know, others think they conduct the question. They say, well, I, I'm just not, not concerned with answering the question. And I want us to see that is a way of answering the question of who Jesus is. You see, if we say, I'm not, not interested in learning more about Jesus, you're answering that question that he's not all that important. And Luke, in his gospel... Remember how he starts it. We talked about it last week. He's saying, look, I've taken a careful record of these things, and this Jesus is important. He's the God-man, and we're all going to be accountable to him. Pay attention to him. He's our Savior. And that's what we want to do today, to focus in on who is this Jesus in all his majesty. Now, a few points that I think we need to take out of this genealogy, this passage of Scripture in Luke chapter 3. You see, bold heading number one. All these names, not counting God at the end of the genealogy, but not, not counting God, we have 76 names. 76 names. You see, you're not the only ones to maybe find this tedious. In fact, one of the more famous textual variants happens from this passage where uh, something called Codex 109 in the British Museum, you said you had a scribe who fell asleep when he was copying this section of Luke. Because Codex 109, it's clear that there were two columns in the manuscript, and some scribe, instead of going down the columns, copied across. So consequently, this not-too-clever scribe, instead of reading down each column, copied across one column to the other. The result makes everyone the son of the wrong father. Worse, the last person in the list is not God, but someone called Pharis, who becomes the father of the entire human race, and God is listed as the son of Aram. So if you gloss over these genealogies, you're not the first one to do so, but I hope that we see at the very least that these names tell us right again something about the genre of this text. This is no myth. I know you've had those objections that I ha have. You know, I say, well, what do you do? I'm a pastor. I say, well, you don't believe that the Bible, do you? I mean, those stories are all invented. They're, they're myth. They're like fairy tales, right? If you listen to Dawkins and all, it's just fairy tales. You might as well, uh, the, the, the other, uh, you know, the, the, the tooth fairy is the same as, as the God of the Bible or whatever. It's just a made-up story. Now, can you imagine you open Hansel and Gretel, and here you say, well, here's Hansel, Who's the son of so-and-so? Who's the son of so-and-so? Who's the son of so-and-so? For 76 names, you'd say, well, that would be absurd. We know that this isn't myth. This kind of thing only happens when you're really concerned about real history. That all these names, tedious though they might be, are telling us that Jesus is in an alignment of ancestors. And there's a couple of key names in the list, aren't there? For example, I liked how Caleb paused, but you have the son of David. David's a big one if you're talking about the Messiah, which is the claim of who Jesus is, if he's the Christ. 
So you have all the messiahs, that, the pretend messiahs that came. One thing was agreed upon by all the Jews, and that is that the real messiah must have David in his lineage. That this comes from 2 Samuel chapter 7, right? That the Messiah would be from, from the lineage of David. That's not of dispute. And here we have, in this instance, we have David in Jesus' lineage. You know, some will object. Well, how do, how do we know it's not made up? And I would argue this. Say, Jews, if you look in other places, are very concerned about genealogies that they were quite good at this kind of thing, and where it becomes most prominent is in the tribe of Levi, because only the Levites could be priests in the temple. That if you read places like the Talmud, you see that Jews did do this. They were very concerned about genealogies, and I would say we're still concerned about genealogies today. That is a kind of booming industry. We really want to know where we come from. It tells us a bit more about ourselves. So far from being something that is, uh, you know, made up or just a name, name dropping, you say, I think this genealogy is a key indicator that we're dealing with real history. Now, these genealogies that are in the Bible have been misused. You say, well, how is a genealogy misused? Genealogies are misused when they're taken to gather dates for the uh, creation of the world. So no doubt you've read some study and you know, you'll have someone who reads the Bible and says, well, come down to a very precise date as to when God created the rock of the earth. Say so usually that method comes from trying to trace these genealogies. So if you look at the 76 names and then you say, well, that you know, give an average lifespan for a human being and you go all the way back, in this case, all the way back to the creation of Adam, you say, there we go, there's an approximate date for the creation of the universe. You see, that's a misuse of the genealogy. Just think about it contextually. You say, do we really think Luke, you know, who's just introduced the great hero of his biography, Jesus, and what he's going to do, is now going to say, well, I'm actually going to make a, a not quite so direct argument about when I think God created the mass of the earth. You say, that's not what this is doing here, right? It's telling us something about Jesus. We're not trying to get back to the age of the earth. And you can see the way genealogies work is that they're not exhaustive. That those who know the Bible well, you'll know Matthew's gospel has a genealogy as well of, of Jesus and Joseph, and you match it up to Luke, you say, well, why don't the names match? See, a lot of the tension goes away if we recognize that the genealogies are not exhaustive. That the way the phrase can mean son can just as easily mean grandson or great-grandson. So take, for example, the beginning of Matthew's gospel. Listen to Matthew 1.1. It's the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, if we conclude that those are three successive generations, say we commit a great error, that there's at least a thousand years between Jesus and David, and at least a thousand years probably between David and Abraham. What's the Bible saying? It's saying Jesus is in the line of David, who's in the line of Abraham. We're not to use that to date the origins of the universe. Now, why do I bring this up? You know that one of my, I guess you could call it a passion, is to talk about how God's truth in the natural world, that is, in the sciences, relates very well with his revealed word from the Bible. That you can think of the Belgic Confession in the 1560s. It says, actually, we Christians, we have two books. We have scripture and we have the book of nature. 
We believe God's personality, right, his beauty and his goodness is imposed on the natural world and things like mathematics and scientific inquiry are good things, good gifts to humans so that we can learn more about God being a God of order and a God of majesty. And one thing that's all too common, you've been coming to Providence for any stretch of time, you know that I'll, I'll talk about this whenever the opportunity arises. Say we really deal in a realm now, even more so now with the, the current climate. You say you can have on the one hand, you say, well, here's all the thinking people over here who do science, and the not so wise people over here who fall back into myths and religion. You say, we wanna say actually science and faith work really well together because it's the same God and he's given us both. So what does this have to do with the genealogy? You see, we don't want to be those who misread the Bible in order to create tensions with science that ought not to exist. So again, I'll kind of repeat the argument. Say some take the genealogy in Luke 3. You trace back the, the age of the people all the way back. You basically come up with a date when we think that the earth might be created based on this genealogy. It goes against people who think a lot about this in science, and we've created a tension, not so much from what the Bible directly says, but from a misreading of the Bible. By way of historical example, you know the Galileo affair back in the early 1600s. So what happened there? Say Galileo, who was a Christian, is thinking about astronomy. And he develops, of course, the model for a heliocentric universe. He says, you know what? Actually, I'm seeing that the sun is the center of our universe and earth moves around the sun. This goes against the prevailing th thinking of the day where we held a geocentricity view. And so Galileo creates a big eruption in the church. Why? Because the church was reading Psalm 104 verse 5. The Lord set the earth upon its foundations so that it shall not be moved. And says, look right there, Psalm 104, verse 5. The earth is on its foundations. It doesn't move. Therefore, Galileo's wrong. Now, what happened there? Remember, we just studied the Psalms. What kind of literature is the Psalms? The Psalms are Hebrew poetry. They're not a scientific textbook. Rather, that line, Psalm 104, verse 5, is talking about how God made everything and he's in control of everything that the whole world's in his hands so to speak that he's the author the sovereign creator that's what it's saying it's not saying geocentricity and what happened what happened is that Galileo won the day the church created a problem because of a bad reading of the Bible and even to this day people will bring up well look at what you Christians did to Galileo so again the challenge here I think is let's not misuse the genealogies to come up with dates for certain things. Rather, let's see them for what they are. What's Luke doing? He's saying, this is who Jesus is. This is his pedigree. He comes in real history. They're not designed for the age of the earth, but rather to tell us that Jesus came from a long line of human fathers and grandfathers and so forth. That's what he's doing. Why? Because Jesus assumed uh, human nature in the same nature as our human nature. So all these names... All these names point to real historical engagement, but not overpressing it into a place where we make mistakes. Now, bold heading number two, what else do we learn from this genealogy? How about verse 23? Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. And then into the genealogy, you say, why is that important? I find this fascinating. No doubt that this has been 
a place of great inquiry for all the Christians over the years. You remember that the last time we're told Jesus' age back in chapter 2, that Jesus is 12 years old. That we have 18 years, in fact, we only have one little glimpse when he's 12. He said, really, it's, you know, we know nothing about Jesus from about the time he's 2 to the time he's 30. We don't know anything about him other than this little glimpse in Luke's gospel of when he's 12. But at least you say 18 years. What has Jesus been doing for 18 years? Now, there's a whole lot of literature that emerges later trying to invent stories about Jesus, and we know that they're invented because they try to fill the gap that the canonical Gospels uh, leave open. That's how we know they're later. But say we don't know much, but I think there are three really important practical things we learn from this little line that Jesus, now all of a sudden at the age of 30, begins his ministry. Point number one. And I know that all these are family services, so I'll try to speak as best I can. I think you'll get the idea. But Jesus was unmarried, and he was a faithful Jew, which means he obeyed the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. Jesus was unmarried and therefore celibate. What this means is that Jesus practiced abstinence. To go a bit further, say, think of how this runs in the face of where our culture is. Say, we basically said, you know, to live out sexually is really to be fully human. You can only be healthy if you're sexually engaged. That's what our culture tells us. That's what it means to be fully alive. You say, well, we look here and we see the most complete and healthy and flourishing human being that's ever lived. The fullest and healthiest was someone who was a virgin, who was abstinent. Now, I say that's not a path many of us take, but I think it does tell us something about how we've got off track on that. Say Jesus was fool in that area. He, he lived an abstinent life and was fully human and happy because he was submitted to God. Now, some today you say, well, singleness is hard. I, I know singleness is hard, but think, what, don't you think it was hard for Jesus? Say very unusual for a Jewish boy to be unmarried. So I can imagine in his 20s, you know, again, I'm kind of just inferring here, but don't you think, say, well, look at this guy. I mean, how weird, a Jewish boy who's not married at the age of 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, still unmarried, must be something wrong with him. Say, Jesus probably endured that, and yet he was a full human being. He flourished, he was healthy, and I hope that's an encouragement to you today where we can think, a lot of us to say, well, you know, this is not something uh, where we're just constantly bombarded with messages in a sex-obsessed culture to remember our model of a perfect human is Jesus, who was abstinent in his 20s. Point number two, Jesus, what did he do? You say, well, there's no, you know, you didn't go to university, really, if you're of Jesus's um, class of people. So what did you do? I mean, here you are, 16. Uh, what do you do with your life? You didn't, you know, have some education. But from what we can tell, Jesus was a professional carpenter, that he used his hands to make things. And we get it not so much from Luke, but we know he's the son of a carpenter, so Joseph's the carpenter. But if you meet Mark 6, 3, you say, that is, is not this the carpenter? That Jesus was a carpenter. And I think the lesson here is that this dignifies secular work. You see, for much of church history that you had the sharp distinction between the sacred and the profane. In other words, calling, to use that word, calling was something that happened to the clergy. 
They say, you want to serve God, you go into the monastery, you want to serve God. If you have that calling, then you become a churchman. But other than that, you're out in the secular world. That was the view, that there's a sharp divide, that things that happened in the church were for those who had the calling, those who were holy and sacred. That's where the sacred things were, but everything else was profane and in the world. Say, I don't think so. Say, Jesus, the God-man, spent the majority of his life at the carpenter's bench. Say, even if he became a carpenter at 18, which I think is, uh, you know, maybe even a late view, you said he would spend four, four times that, the time of his public ministry at the carpenter's bench. Say, I realize other than Pastor Ian, Pastor Caleb, and Pastor Joe, say, most of us were not ordained. And I think it's so easy to fall and say, well, you've got the, the kind of the holy guys who work at the church. You know, they, they've got the calling, but not us out here in the business world, working in the hospitals, in the banks, or in full-time parenting. Say, I don't know if I'd use that for a call. Say, I think this lesson from Jesus is so important that he dignifies, God's son dignifies calling in the real world. And I, I leave it, you know, Max Weber, some will know that name, really considered the founder of sociology, wrote a famous book called The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. And Weber really breaks this down. He says, look, in when we read the Bible and we see what Protestantism brought, and, and particularly through the Puritans, you see that God approves of people, his people, who are in the real world serving him. Do you know an opportunity that you have, those of you, again, most of you, that when you go into the real world, you don't work at the church. The chance you have to spread abroad the, the love, of message of Jesus, of Christ crucified, there's opportunities for those in, in those vocations, for people that those of us on a pastoral staff will never get to interact with them. Say, as soon as we'll say something like, well, I work at a church, a lot of people, they'll just, they'll just shut off. But say, most of you in your vocations, whatever you're called to, in those, just remember that Jesus dignifies those vocations and you can share him with those people in a way that a clergyman never can. That that sacred profane divide is broken down in the life of Jesus. Why? It was 30 years old. That's when he began his public ministry. But for most of the time, he was serving in another way. And that's important. And then point number three from verse 23, that Jesus was 30, is that it shows us his great patience. Say, what a hurry so many of us are in to get on to the next thing, to kind of make it. And I just wonder, Jesus, as his consciousness of who he was, no doubt was there, just waiting, right? Waiting for just the right time, waiting for God's forerunner, waiting for God, John the Baptist, waiting for just the right time. Is it all those 20s were in such a hurry? Jesus waits. Reminds me of that line there you have in Matthew 25. When he says, well done, good and faithful servant, what you've been faithful over a few things, and I'll make you ruler over many things. And I challenge you today, say we're all chasing after something, you know, the promotion or the next break, and it's not coming soon enough, or we're not getting out of this pandemic quick enough, or whatever it would be. Say, what a lesson and patience we learn from God's only begotten son. All those years at the carpenter bench, it's not time yet, it's not time yet, it's not time yet until when? just the right time when God sends his forerunner. So again, verse 23, so important. Jesus' public ministry began when he was about 30. He lived a life of abstinence and was fully human. He worked as a carpenter, dignifying our secular work, and he displayed great patience as he waited on God. Now, bold heading number three. This genealogy's ending is so important. 
We said the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. That Luke's genealogy goes all the way back to the fountainhead of humanity. Goes back to those very first human being, to Adam himself. Say, why is this so important? Because most of the names on the list, you know, going through Abraham, you say here that that case is being made that Jesus was Jewish. That Jesus came from God's covenanted people, right? From Abraham and from David, as Matthew's genealogy does. Say, this is a, a Jewish man who's in the line of David. He's certainly the Messiah. He's one of us. But the genealogy goes back further to the head of all humanity, to Adam himself. You see, this is such a powerful lesson that Jesus is for all people. That Adam, the first person, gives way to all mankind, all humankind, all the races, and that humanity is made directly by God in his image. Now, can you think of a more important message for the church to have on its tongues today than this notion that every person is made in the image of God? That Jesus, of course, reminds us of that, say he's good for all human beings, that all of us come from the same, uh, the, the same source, right, from God, uh, made in God's image through Adam, and Jesus, just like us, right, is a representation for all people, not just those in Northeast Ohio, not just his own race, but he's good for all people, all the nations. You can trace that theme through all scripture, right? Jesus was for all the nations, and I think that this category is becoming so important today as we see the factions divided on ideological lines, divided on racial lines and whatever. Say, how important to say, look, there's God who's made human beings in his image and every human being matters to him. Now, I'm going to raise a few questions and I want to be very careful here because I'm going to enter into a kind of apologetic and I think it's something that we need to think about and... Um, we always want to be that kind of church where we think about things and what's being said and how we engage in the, in the current issues. And one thing that I've realized in the last three months is that there are very few um, what I would call logically behaving naturalists. You see, to me, logically behaving naturalists, and what I mean by naturalists, is those who believe that we're all here by random chance, that there is no God, there is no essence, there is no meaning. It's simply chance, uh, chance and substance, and here we are. Say, so that's the naturalistic position. Now, I want to raise these two questions and, again, delicately approach them so that the argument's not misunderstood. But you see there, letter A. What would a strictly logical, naturalistic position dictate with this pandemic? Now, last I checked that the average age of those who've died in Ohio is about 80 or 81. You say, would not the logical naturalistic position, I mean, if you're really committed to the axioms of that position, you say, why is this not just a pruning of the weaker members of our culture? You see, the way I see it is that the way the pandemic works is that it's attacking those who are more vulnerable, those who are older, those who we might say, well, if the average age of death is 80, those who are the uh, no longer working members of our society, to me, it would be a logical position to say that this is a pruning and a weeding out of those who are weakest in our species. And one thing that I've noticed is I've not heard one person make that argument. Not one person's made that argument. What they've said is that actually it's incumbent upon all of us to look out for the weakest members of society. 
Now, I've asked this question in a lot of forums at various universities, say I'm not entirely sure why, on a naturalistic framework, it would be in my interest to behave altruistically towards those who are no longer productive. But everybody does. And here's what I want to say. The argument is not those who are naturalistic or heartless. That's not the argument. The argument is this, that even the naturalists are behaving as if the Bible's true. Can you see that? You see, it's as if everyone understands this notion of the image of God, that it's deep down inside us. See, we really want it to be true. However, that does not fit in a naturalistic framework. It fits within what the Bible has always said. You know, I like how some have said we live in a cut-off flower society. Say, so just today, I'm looking at the flower. What happens to the flowers when they're cut off? They're pretty for a time, but they begin to fade because they're cut off from the root. And so we have this kind of strange situation now where everybody's saying, look, we, we really do need to take care of everybody, even if they're, they're weak. Well, does that come out of a naturalistic framework? No, it's a hangover from the Christian worldview that influences all of us so much. And so again, I just challenge opening a discussion. You say, you want to think about these issues with me. But why is it that it seems to me a crudely naturalistic position, a logically naturalistic position, no one espouses that? Is it because they understand the image of God? Point number B, I'm going to press this a bit further. What would a strictly logical naturalistic position dictate on racial tensions? See, again, Minneapolis, everyone I know, certainly us in the church, you say that's a great tragedy that happened. He said, but is it a great tragedy if you're a naturalist? Because aren't you just saying that I'm inclined to take care of the people around me and take care of the people who are closest to me and look like me and who are in my gene pool? I mean, this has long been recognized of a problem of naturalism that no one talks about. Say racism can be a very natural, logical consequence to a naturalistic position. Once again, I can understand taking care of those who might not be like me in my circle, because if I don't do that, then I'm not going to be well-liked. That could be in my, my evolutionary interest, but it's certainly not in my evolutionary interest to be co so concerned about those. Why would I behave naturalistic towards those who are far away from me? See, unless, unless there's something deep inside us that says we're all made in the image of God, and there's something sacred in every human being. Again, the argument is not that naturalists are racist. That is not what I'm saying. What I'm saying, it's precisely because the naturalists are not racist that makes me think that their worldview does not fit with the positions that they hold, but fits with what the Bible has always said. And now this is very delicate. I realize that. But you see, I think that it does come through. I think of the atheistic philosopher who I really respect. I disagree with everything he says, but it's a really good read. If you read something like John Gray, the political theorist, the philosopher, read his book. It's a popular book called Straw Dogs. It's been written in a number of languages. Basic premise, right? Human beings are just like animals. Any notion of progress, any notion of morality, that comes from Christianity. We got to get rid of it. One of his chapters is called The Unsanctity of Human Life. He says there's no such thing as human history. All we has, have is animals behaving. He even dismisses the idea of a person. You see, why I like Gray, even though I disagree with him, is what he's doing. He say, look, we can't pretend to be these great humanists that talk about meaning and equality and progress. We can't talk about that with our naturalistic underpinnings. It's much darker than that. You see, what the humanist and the naturalist does is they say they get rid of Jesus, they get rid of the Bible, but they still hold vestiges of the positions that only logically make sense in a biblical framework. 
And I hope, friends, that what we see in all this, in the times in which we live, that we have the Lord Jesus. And Luke is drawing us to this. You know, where Caleb read the passage where we picked up last week, then in verse 22, we see the Trinity, right? God the Father declaring to Jesus that he's his son and the Holy Spirit descends on him. You see there that Jesus is God's son. And then, of course, this long lineage that he's fully human. Say all these men in this list in Luke 3 have gone the way that we're all going. Flourish for a time, sinful, and going to return to the dust. You say, but it's the Lord Jesus, the God-man, who liberates us from these things. That it's in Jesus that we have both the great power and the purity for the times that we live, the great source of stability, the God-man who reconciles us with God. You see how unique he is. I hope you read it, or as we read together, the Westminster Confession. Did you read it? Say, we believe in the God-man. That's exactly what Luke's doing here in this genealogy. He's the son of God, but he's also human. He's been put forward for us, and he's different. You know, I realize that all of us now, we feel let down by others. So there's kind of one theme across everyone I talk to just feels we we feel so let down feel that the the directions that we're given or the political voices just everybody just can you know just feel so let down so disappointed in people see I hope we see in Jesus how different he is that he identifies with us as being fully human but he's the God man and he ultimately is the one we need to soften our hearts on these issues to say I do care about others, not in myself because I'm a sinful, selfish person, but I'm a recipient of God's grace, of Jesus's grace, and that's what we need to spread abroad. See, I think what Luke's doing with this genealogy is saying Jesus is the focal point of history, that he's like us. He's for all people, the son of Adam. He's for all the nations and all people, but he's also the son of God, and that's what gives us such hope. Friends, I realize we skip over these genealogies a lot, but I hope we see that at the very least, it's making the case that Jesus is really in history. Secondly, we learn a lot about the timing of this. At just the right time, Jesus comes, that he's the God-man. And lastly, that by virtue of Jesus being significant for the whole human race, that that's exactly what we need to have on our minds and hearts in these times. That anything less is going to be um, a dead end but really we see in Jesus someone pure, someone for all people, someone who shows us grace, someone who shows us to love, someone who shows us to, to see that the image of God in all people is sacred and to be protected. And so again, may we turn our allegiance to this God-man this week. May we think about how important he is in these tumultuous times. So we'll sing a few songs as this sinks in. Father, thank you very much again uh, for this genealogy that we don't uh, worship uh, because of a fairy tale, but uh, you sent forth your son who had a real human lineage, um, that it shows that it's accurate, that this Greco-Roman biography has made an impression on Luke and subsequently through the generations, he's part to grapple with it and to see that Jesus is for everyone. And in all the voices as to how we solve the times in which we're in, I, I pray that we cling closely to Jesus and say he's really he's what's different that we, we we don't have the right laws we don't have the right people we don't have the right stuff in our brains but what we have is the lord jesus the god man and so help that to shine through our church family and may we we live like him and may we share him for his greater glory amen
out his love for us. I'm best beyond a measure that he should give his only son to make our richest treasure how great the pain of searing loss the father turns his face away as wounds which my the chosen one Bring many sons to glory.
We see in this Jesus what the world cannot offer, the God-man. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. For as a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection from the dead. Thank you to God for preserving that passage in Luke, that Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man, who prevails for us, gives us hope in these times. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ the love of God the Father, the communion and fellowship of the Holy Spirit rest and abide upon each of you until we shall meet again or until our blessed Savior Jesus Christ comes now and forevermore. Amen. Thank you.